A mafia-esque protection fund, an undercover agent working in the legislature, and two officials facing investigation commit suicide. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of October 28th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Last week on Grand Divisions, we covered part one of Operation Rocky Top, the 1980s federal and state investigation into corruption for an illegal charitable bingo scheme. We heard how Randy McNally, once a lowly lawmaker who has since ascended to become lieutenant governor, was bribed and worked undercover with federal and state officials for several years, recording conversations with his colleagues, lobbyists, and others. We also explored how the Tennessean newspaper began reporting on the massive bingo operation in 1987 after attending a seemingly innocuous committee meeting. If you missed last week's episode, you're going to want to go back and listen. To fully understand this case, you've got to know a little bit about some of the key players involved. There was Jim Long, the Bingo Association lobbyist. Then there's Donnie Walker, the cigar-chomping chief enforcement officer of Charitable Bingo for the Secretary of State, who later became a lobbyist and who lived next door to Long. Another important character is David Peabody Ledford, a former state lawmaker turned lobbyist, and there's also Tommy Burnett, a rising star among Democratic lawmakers who was the consummate dealmaker. All of these characters played a central role in the entire plot of Operation Rocky Top. Here's Phil Williams, a former Tennessean reporter who was on the story, laying out the complicated scheme these players were involved in. So, so you had professional gamblers, essentially, who were operating these charity bingo halls. The, they were doing it in, uh, in, in several different ways. Uh, in some cases, they were creating their own fraudulent charities. Uh, in other cases, they were uh, renting the names of legitimate charities and promising them a percentage. Uh, in other cases, they were actually taking over legitimate charities and and running off the the, the figures who were involved in those charities. Uh, And and so you had this group of shady characters that decided that they needed to come together and and look after their mutual interest. The group formed what was known as the Association. The Association's lobbyist, Jim Long, was next-door neighbors to Donnie Walker, the state's enforcement officer of Charitable Bingo. Members of the association, which the Tennessean reported in 1987 totaled 40 people, paid $500 a month for protection from raids by the state at their bingo parlors. The association also had a political action committee, known as Tennesseans for Better Government, which donated thousands of dollars to lawmakers. These professional gamblers paid in money to, quote, the association. That money went to the chief regulator, or at least part of it did, Donnie Walker, in return, they would get warnings about when the inspectors would be coming into their hall, so so that you know there, there was nothing you know suspicious that was out <laughs> where, where the inspectors would, would you know be able to write them up for violating the law, hmm. uh, and and so again, it's very mafia-esque. As the Tennesseans reporting continued, Phil Williams, who had most recently been a police reporter, relied on his relationship with law enforcement officials. 
while we were reporting on what we were finding, uh, it became pretty clear that the FBI was and IRS were developing a pretty serious interest in in this same subject matter. Back in that day, uh, you could talk to an FBI agent. That was Tom Humphrey, a Knoxville News Sentinel reporter at the time. Officially, they had the same line they've always had, right. that if it's under investigation, we have no comment. But unofficially, an FBI agent or TBI agents, would, they would talk to you off the record if they trusted you. I certainly knew who the uh, FBI and TBI agents were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when, when I would see them coming through the Capitol, I, I knew that you know, those were people I needed to pay attention to. I, I think the way I would characterize it is they would never violate the, their oath to not disclose grand jury information. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- there were certainly times that I had clues about you know who I should talk to who might be able to talk. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if an FBI agent uh, comes to you and and interviews you about what you know about a given subject, the FBI agent cannot tell me what you said, but you are free to mm-hmm. tell me. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, certainly there there might have been times that I, I knew I need to go talk to X person. Here's FBI Special Agent Richard Knutson. The uh, reporter that I uh, would have occasional contact was uh, Phil Williams. And um, he seemed, Phil seemed to have good sources. And every once in a while, he would call and he'd say, well, if I run a story about thus and so and so and so, well, I, am I off track? And, and sometimes he would be. And I would never give him any information. I would never tell him anything. And I'd say, I'd say no, you're, you know, you're going you're gonna to embarrass or you're going to impute an innocent person's integrity, mm-hmm. uh, something like that. Or, uh, yeah, I'd say, yeah, you're on the right track. You know, he wanted he wanted to make sure that he got it right. And I viewed that as kind of like my role, that I didn't want him him going off and, you know, some wild goose chase. The Tennessean stories continued throughout the rest of 1987. State officials announced they were looking into some of the players the newspaper had highlighted. Before the end of the year, the Tennessean found a grand jury was set to convene in Memphis. It would be the first of many. The stories continued in 1988 as more aspects of the bingo scheme were investigated by the paper and law enforcement. And then in August 1988, a federal grand jury indicted two Memphis bingo operators on fraud and conspiracy charges. The indictments would be the first, but far from the last, that would occur over the next few years. One of the most notable indictments was made public in January 1989. That's when Donnie Walker pleaded guilty to federal racketeering, conspiracy, and tax evasion charges. He also pleaded guilty to state charges of offering a bribe to McNally. Uh, Donnie Walker had worked for the Secretary of State's office as a guy who was on the take running the enforcement end for the Secretary of State. He left that and then became a lobbyist. He was in his lobbyist role and he got the horse racing people as a client. And he offered the $10,000 with Randy McNally taping the conversation. The news was a wake-up call at the state capitol. I, I, I think the reaction was, oh, bleep. Because at that point, no one knew how far this went. Mm-hmm. Who else might be on, on a recording? Hmm. And, and so I, I think it sent shockwaves through Capitol Hill. Here's how former State Representative Matt Kisber recalls the day the McNally news broke. My recollection of uh, that day is, you know, 
everybody's working in the legislative plaza. There are committees going on, there are people in the hallways, and whenever big news occurred, it spread pretty quickly. And there was a certain amount of disbelief that something that big had been going on right amongst us, and yet most everybody didn't know anything about it. Uh, there was a, a little bit of shock, I think initial shock at, at first, um, before the facts started coming out and, and more was learned about what was going on. I think everybody was was surprised. At the same time, those of us who had been been covering the story and had a sense of how deep the corruption had become were really proud to see that somebody in that morass actually had an ethical compass. That was Jim O'Hara, former Tennessean State House reporter. Here's Teresa Wasson, who was the Tennessean city editor at the time. It was heartening. Um, and I don't think that if we had been guessing who would who would wear a wire at the legislature, that we would have said it was Randy McNally. But what Speaker McNally did then, of course, he was just a senator at mm-hmm. that point, was very brave, incredibly brave and honest. Uh, and, you know, people like that give you hope when you're when you're seeing so many people who are involved in corruption. But the revelation of McNally's involvement generated frustration among many at the Capitol. I mean, I think that there, there really was. It was a sense that we have rules, and he's broken a rule. The rules being? Loyalty. Yeah. And he had been disloyal to the legislature by will, being willing to work with the uh, FBI. McNally had his own concerns about his ability to continue serving in the legislature after his involvement became public. Well, I, I worried, you know, if, if I would just be unable to do anything. Fortunately, uh, for me, I think it, it was a time in which a battle within the leadership of the Senate, and that helped me, I think. Also, I think people were being elected to the Senate and the House that were you know, a little, a little higher moral character overall. There were some people that, you know, supported me and thanked me for what I'd done. McNally successfully ran for re-election to the state Senate in 1990, despite facing criticism while he campaigned. His involvement in the federal investigation wasn't the only development that came as a shock to those inside the Capitol. In July 1989, the Tennessean published a story about an undercover FBI agent who had infiltrated the nefarious bingo operation. The agent was named Ken Walsh. Around the legislature, he was known as Ken Wilson and introduced himself as an Atlanta-based businessman working in the world of bingo and lottery. He had a beard and horn-rimmed glasses, rented an apartment near the Capitol, gave political contributions to lawmakers, worked with lobbyists, and went to private meetings with many of the key players. And at one point, he was even briefly introduced to Williams. It was during that time that, in his undercover capacity, that I actually met him. The, the lobbyist introduced me. I had no clue that there had been an undercover FBI agent on Capitol Hill until I happened to be in a courtroom in Memphis one day. And he came in and sat down next to me and introduced himself as an FBI agent. But by this time, his undercover role was over. Uh, he had shaved the beard that, that, that he had worn uh, on Capitol Hill. 
After Williams figured out Walsh had been around the Capitol, Williams set out on a Where's Waldo search of sorts. I, I spent hours going through old photo contact sheets with, with, with a magnifying glass because I felt there was a pretty good chance that we might have a photo of him in, in his undercover capacity. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we, we did have, I think, one or two. When the newspaper published its story in 1989 describing Walsh's undercover role, Peabody Ledford, a lobbyist who was later ensnarled in the investigation, was quoted as saying, Oh shit, are you serious? I introduced him to a lot of people up there. I kind of suspected he might be an agent when he suddenly disappeared, but I thought I was just crazy. Now I feel like I've been used. Ledford was indicted in September of 1989 and faced two charges related to bribing McNally. I hope you're enjoying Grand Divisions. I'm Dwayne Gang, the politics editor for The Tennessean. The analysis and interviews Joel and Natalie bring you each week help take you behind the story. We're lucky to have them as part of our newsroom team. But more importantly, they are your eyes on the state house and governor, bringing you stories about what motivates lawmakers and how their actions impact you. But they can't do their work without your support. If you're enjoying Grand Divisions and their coverage of the Capitol, please consider subscribing to The Tennessean. Go to tennessean.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. All throughout 1989, more people were indicted and pleaded guilty for their role in the bingo scheme. Among them were former lawmaker Jack Burnett, state election commissioner and former lawmaker Tommy Powell, and former lawmaker and General Sessions judge Ira Murphy. Bingo industry figure William McBee was indicted for allegedly having a, quote, hit list. In November 1989, State Representative Tommy Burnett, a rising star in Tennessee politics who many thought would go on to run for governor, was indicted. Tommy Burnett had come back from uh, prison in 1985. He had been elected from prison in 1984. And Tommy began reclaiming his prominence as the preeminent dealmaker in the state legislature who could forge compromises that no one else could. Burnett's stint in prison was for tax evasion. He just didn't file returns, which was, was an incredibly stupid thing for a man who was a brilliant political tactician right. and one of the best orators I've ever heard. Worked hand in glove with McWhorter on all sorts of things. Somebody who could have been governor. Many people thought that was in his future. I was among them. I thought right. he's, he was such a good speaker and so clever. He was, uh, when he was around running that first time, uh, Lamar Alexander, Republican governor, endorsed Tommy Burnett, Democrat, for re-election while he was in prison. Burnett was indicted and charged with mail fraud, illegal gambling, conspiracy, and perjury. As a series of indictments were handed out, the massive corruption investigation captured a number of others, too, including some who had no major involvement in the bingo scheme. Among them was Ted Ray Miller, a Democratic legislator from Knoxville who allegedly tried to extort $75,000 from a lawyer not to push a bill. Instead of indicting Miller, the feds tried to get him to cooperate. He shot himself with a shotgun on July 17, 1989. Another official nabbed by the investigation was David Collins, a former state elections coordinator who was convicted of scheming to rig a state contract for ballot boxes. But one of the biggest names investigators were eyeing was Gentry Crowell, Tennessee's Secretary of State. 
he had uh, testified before a federal grand jury. Uh, this is Gentry? Gentry Crow mm-hmm. uh, had testified before a federal grand jury. And uh, one of the prosecutors was coming out of the grand jury room, and I just kind of casually mentioned, uh, so, so how, how did it go? And the response was, well, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. <laughs> and so at that point, I thought, holy crap, something's happening here. Um, I, I would later hear from, from my own sources that uh, after that grand jury meeting, uh, Secretary Crowell had been in a meeting with uh, several members of his staff, and he got a phone call from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he took the phone call. Uh, and when he got off the phone, he just laid his head down on his desk. He was obviously very despondent about what was happening. He knew how serious at that point it was. Yeah. Here's a clip from a WKRN newscast provided by Middle Tennessee State University's Albert Gore Research Center. Tennessee Secretary of State Gentry Crowell leaves a grand jury hearing as the state's more than three-year-old corruption investigation, codenamed Rocky Top, grinds along. No one knows for sure what effect this marathon investigation has had. One day Tom Humphrey saw Crowell just after he published an excoriating piece. And I wrote a column that had included a line that said, if stupidity were a capital crime, then Gentry Crowell would be staring at the gallows. And that ran on a Sunday, and then I think it was probably a Tuesday. I was walking down the legis- in front of the legislative cafeteria, and Gentry came walking out of the cafeteria. He saw me, and he stopped, and he stared up into the air like that. And I said, oh, Mr. Secretary, and he just continued staring into the air, I said, sir, are you okay? He said, I'm staring at the gallows. The next day, he killed himself. He shot himself with a pistol at the front porch of his house in Lebanon. Emergency workers rushed Gentry Crowell to the Vanderbilt Trauma Center early this morning. He had spent a harrowing trip speeding from Lebanon's University Medical Center along I-40. Vanderbilt's life flight helicopter already committed to another emergency. Chris sustained a 38 caliber gunshot wound to the oral mouth area. It's easily visible on the x-rays. It went from the front off to the left. Uh, the bullet actually did not come out. It was lodged sort of in the, the just underneath the, the bone. Crowell slipped into a coma and died. Eight days later. It was it was a joyless, joyless moment. As a reporter, you have a human response. Mm-hmm. And, and you just, you feel sad. You mm-hmm. feel very, very sad. I wouldn't take back any of our reporting. No. But it was sad. From a human perspective, it's certainly sad. Uh, I I had a conversation with Secretary Crowell a a few days before he committed suicide. And and, and I look back on it with just a tinge of regret because, you know, he he said, I am not a crook. I don't care what other people say. I am not a crook. And being a a, a young, you know, slightly smart-ass reporter, I replied, well, that's what Richard Nixon said, too. And I could tell that it stung. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I now know in hindsight it was because he knew that he was in deep, deep trouble. 
It's certainly unfortunate when an investigation ends that way. And, and, and in fact, there were people close to him who blamed us for pushing him to suicide. In the end, it was his own failures that led him to, to make that decision. And, and I'm sad that it had to come to that. Here's Kisber and Billy Stair, who was part of Governor Ned Ray McWhorter's staff at the time. I can remember as a 29-year-old representative in my third term thinking two suicides of colleagues within six months of each other. I mean, what, what is wrong? What is going on that evidently I, wasn't, I couldn't see was taking oh, place? Oh, it, ex- it was extraordinary. We hadn't had anything remotely like mm-hmm. that, certainly in, in my career. And uh, I guess just from a personal perspective, one of the things that made that so difficult was that over the years, you develop friendships with these people. You're totally unaware of these illegal activities that are happening out here on the perimeter, but the relationships and the friendships and the loyalties are very powerful. And when your friends kill themselves, it, it, it rattles you in a fundamental way. I remember going to Ted Ray's funeral. It was very, very difficult. Williams kept thinking about Crowell's suicide as he continued reporting. I, I, I try never to forget the humanity uh, of, of the people that I'm investigating and, and to treat them the same way that I would want to be treated if I had made a mistake in my life. It was never clear why Crowell did what he did. We never reported why Secretary Crowell killed himself. Mm-hmm. What I would learn in, in the years after that tragic event was that there had been an envelope that had money in it that was intended for the McWhorter campaign, uh, Ned McWhorter's gubernatorial campaign. There had been money taken out of that envelope, and the amount on the outside of the envelope had been changed. He was asked right before his suicide to come into the U.S. Attorney's Office and give a handwriting sample. What my sources have told me is that the questions that he was facing involved whether he had taken money that had been collected by the industry to to go to the governor's campaign. Ultimately, McWhorter was never touched by the investigation. The FBI file released after McWhorter's death said, quote, Although Mr. McWhorter was surrounded by individuals who were involved in the Vigo scam, he at no time was a subject, witness, or a target in the Rocky Top investigation. When this first leaked out in the legislature, it spreads like wildfire, and rumors beget rumors, and they who knows if they're grounded in any element of truth. And not surprisingly, there was a lot of anxiety within the governor's staff and his folks. Well, who's involved? Is the governor involved? Are they going to come after me? And we did not know, because it would be appropriate for us not to know, the governor had been working with the TBI, and he had been working through his legal counsel, David Wells. He always insisted that any conversation he had with the TBI include David in the room, which I think was a very wise thing to do, but none of the rest of us knew anything about it. Mm. And he finally one day realized the tension had gotten so bad it was just palpable, and he called his senior staff in at lunch and said, look, 
there's an investigation going on. I can't tell you anything about it other than to know none of you is involved and I'm not involved. By the end of 1989, the Tennessean reported 25 people had been indicted or pleaded guilty. In 1990, the newspaper's coverage of the unfolding corruption scheme led to it being named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in the public service category. I remember the day the announcement was being made, and I I left my home uh, out out in the uh, Brentwood area, Uh, and I was heading into the office. I was cutting it close. I was going to get there just in time for the announcement, and my oil light, light came on on my car, and I thought, well, I can't be late for the Pulitzer announcement. I'm going to keep going. Well, I ended up burning out my engine, <laughs> and and then, uh, but by the time we, uh, I got there to the office, and uh, I found out we were a finalist. <laughs> but it, you know, certainly it it was a, a wonderful start to 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 my career. I mean, well, to to be one, you know, the first major project that, that I worked on. We had hundreds of stories on this topic in the course of a couple of years, hundreds, and I think we all got a little tired of it at some point, but we just kept uncovering things and we kept uncovering things. Um, That is one of the reasons why local journalism needs the support of the people who live in the community, because somebody has to pay for that kind of thing to be uncovered. Uh, And journalists are the ones whose job it is to do that. Um, They need support uh, and they need to be able to uh, be financially sound when they're doing it. Democracy depends on it. In total, more than 70 people faced charges for their role in the Rocky Top scandal. In its wake, lawmakers considered initiating changes. Prior to the scandal, it was not uncommon for lobbyists to give lawmakers what was called, quote, walking around or suit and cigar money. Here's former House Speaker Jimmy Nafee recalling the ways lawmakers and lobbyists interacted. To be honest, I was uh, with a group one time when a lobbyist credit card was pulled out by a member and and the bill taken care of. Uh, I was surprised. I was shocked and uh, I just uh, really couldn't believe that that it was happening like that. Now, I mean, I came we, from a small town and we just didn't have things, didn't do things like that. During the investigation, I remember there was there was one point where Donnie Walker came into my office and, you know, we were chatting and he asked what I was doing that night. And I told him that I was taking my wife out to dinner and he handed me a credit card and said well I'd like to join you but I can't I've got some you know other things going on but here you know have a meal on me and it at first it was that lobbyists could pay so much for a meal and you know I guess with any rule that you make people try to find a way around it so it might be that three or four people go out for dinner, then five lobbyists pay for it because it's over the limit, you know, so they divide it up. He gave gave me a credit card, which was part of the investigation and everything. So there was also a, a thing where you could take a committee to to lunch, and there was one committee called the, the Calendar Committee, and there were three people on it. And you could take the calendar committee or invite the calendar committee to lunch lunch or dinner and then invite anybody else you wanted to. And you didn't have to send the invitations out until after the event was over with. 
So I remember I was chairman of the calendar committee for a while, and I'd get all these invitations, but they were like two or three days too late. (laughs) Here's Michael Cody, the attorney general at the time. The press has shined a light on the problems, and the people get pissed off and mad about it, and uh, they want something done, and so the legislature can no longer just ignore it. As with many political scandals, Operation Rocky Top forced legislators to take action. Several members, including McNally and Kisber, pushed legislation to toughen the state's ethics and campaign finance disclosure laws. You're a member of this body, and the actions of a few tarnish the reputations of the whole. And I know that there were, you know, all of us concerned about, you know, going back home and how you, how you explain and discuss what's taking place because you really don't fully understand what's taking place and how it could have occurred. But you know you've got to do something to make sure that safeguards are in place that it doesn't occur again. Well, we were changing the way the the society had been up there for many years, and, and it was hard to do. Uh, some folks think we went too far into and, and what we did pass. It was just it was a difficult uh, uh, time to be able to determine when was enough enough. I remember one of the most contentious issues, and it's trivial in some respects, but the University of Tennessee football tickets. Mm-hmm. They, they always gave free football tickets to the legislators, mm-hmm. and that got wrapped up in this debate in a way that they don't have them anymore. But they also gave tickets to challengers, and we had some people running for office just to get those free <laughs> football tickets. That's, that's true. A number of changes were made over a multi-year process that led to the creation of the state's Registry of Election Finance, which today is one of the few watchdogs that oversees lawmakers. Today, more than 30 years after Operation Rocky Top was made public, There's a few intriguing parallels, including one-party domination and the speculation of law enforcement investigations. And then, of course, there are other similarities, given the downfall of House Speaker Glenn Cassida, who resigned from his leadership post in August 2019 amid scandal. Back in the 80s, the Democrats were still, they were as dominant as the political party as the Republicans are today. Right. And when you get that strong a power, you have someone able to, the Cassidy situation, it, 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 is, it makes it more easily to exploit. And that, in Rocky Top, the Democrats didn't question Gentry Crowell or what was done over right. there. They didn't—he was one part of the gang. He was a big fundraiser for the Democrats. He uh, helped raise a lot of money for them. Bill. And he had come up through the ranks. Yeah. yeah. He came—yeah, he was a former legislator himself. Right. The godfather, he was known as in his right. legislative days. It's human beings and power, they sometimes get into that mix and start thinking that they can get away with anything. And I think in that kind of environment, people get cocky, they get sloppy, they, they start to feel entitled. And, and so what would have been unthinkable in a different environment, suddenly some people are willing to consider and they're, they're willing to, to maybe step across the line a little bit. And then that makes it easier to step across the next line. Uh, And and so I I do think there are a lot of parallels. 
and and there's still you know basic human greed and and i think that will always be with us when one political party holds most of the power in the state is a time to be paying particular attention the other thing is when there's lots of money involved and a party that's entrenched in power your state is ripe for corruption these corruption things sort of go in waves like an ocean you know they kind of come up and you get a get a wave and then it goes back down and people relax and then you get another kind of corruption opportunity that comes up and somebody will take advantage of it but in all of those cases i think the tennessee system was able to address those things much has changed in tennessee since operation rocky top the state has tighter restrictions and reporting requirements on lobbyists and lawmakers And McNally went from a backbencher to eventually the number two politician in Tennessee. He became lieutenant governor in 2017, a position he currently holds. Today, McNally has a modest view of how he became involved in one of the most notorious corruption scandals in Tennessee history. Well, I I felt it was was part of my duty and part of what what I'd sworn to do. This has been a special two-part edition of Grand Divisions. Script, story, and research by Joel Ebert. Narrated by Joel Ebert and Natalie Allison. Recorded by Joel Ebert and John Garcia. Audio production by John Garcia. Visual and video work by Erica Whitney, Mike Fant, and Ricky Rogers. A thanks to those interviewed, including Randy McNally, Jim O'Hara, Phil Williams, Teresa Wasson, Tom Humphrey, Michael Cody, Richard Knudsen, Jimmy Nafee, Matt Kisber, and Billy Stair. And a special thanks to Dwayne Gang, Adam Kleinheider, Eric Schelzig, Andy Schur, and Middle Tennessee State University's Albert Gore Research Center. Mm-hmm.